Hi, and welcome to the Soul on Fire Bible Study Podcast. I'm Katie. And I'm Justin. Get ready to let God's consuming flame take hold of your life. Join us as we follow along with the Chapel High School Ministries Sunday Night Bible Study in the Book of John. Each week we'll dive deeper into another chapter and demonstrate how God speaks to us all through His Word. Hey everybody, and welcome back to our study in John. It's really exciting here to be able to go over John chapter 7 with you. And this is kind of a chapter where Jesus starts to stir up the water a little bit. Yeah, I've been super excited about this chapter because I think there's a lot of symbolism. I don't know if you could tell, I love the symbolic passages. So I'm ready to dive in. You ready, Justin? Yeah, let's go. Cool. You ready? Okay, so we're going to start beginning of chapter 7, seven one. After this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea, where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelter. And Jesus' brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. Wow. Okay. So we read up until verse five. Okay. So I know I've been tracking the map where we're going. We are coming from Capernaum right now when we were in chapter six and we're staying around the region of Galilee right now. And his brothers are telling him to go back to Jerusalem. So now he's in Galilee. They're telling him to go back to Judea. Something that's been kind of interesting here is that they want him to go to Jerusalem for a festival. They talk about the Festival of Booths, also Festival of Shelters. Uh, And when I looked this up, because I didn't know what the context was, according to my ESV study Bible, it's so named because people lived in outdoor shelters to remember God's faithfulness to Israel during the wilderness years. So you have to think back to Moses And I'm actually going to read a passage from Leviticus 23. This is verses 33 through 44 in the NLT version. So as a side note, before I read this part, Leviticus 23, the whole chapter is about appointed festivals that God is telling the people, these are different things you're going to celebrate, different remembrances. So if you ever get a chance, it is really interesting. Go ahead and read through it. That was Leviticus 23. I'm going to start under the section that's titled the Festival of Shelters. Verse 33, and the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. Begin celebrating the festival of shelters on the 15th day of the appointed month, five days after the day of atonement. This festival to the Lord will last for seven days. On the first day of the festival, you must proclaim an official day for holy assembly when you do no ordinary work. For seven days, you must present special gifts to the Lord. The eighth day is another holy day on which you present your special gifts to the Lord. This will be a solemn occasion and no ordinary work may be done that day. These are the Lord's appointed festivals. Celebrate them each year as official days for holy assembly by presenting special gifts to the Lord. Burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices and liquid offerings, each on its proper day. These festivals must be observed in addition to the Lord's regular Sabbath days. And the offerings are in addition to your personal gifts. The offerings you give to fulfill your vows and the voluntary offerings you present to the Lord. Remember that this seven-day festival to the Lord, the Festival of Shelters, begins on the 15th day of the appointed month after you have harvested all the produce of the land. The first day and the eighth day of the festival will be days of complete rest. On the first day, gather branches from magnificent trees, palm fronds, boughs from leafy trees and willows that grow by the streams then celebrate with joy before the lord your god for seven days you must observe this festival to the lord for seven days every year this is a permanent law for you and it must be observed in the appointed month from generation to generation for seven days you must live outside in little shelters All native-born Israelites must live in shelters. This will remind each generation of Israelites that I made their ancestors live in shelters when I rescued them from the land of Egypt. 
I am the Lord your God. So Moses gave the Israelites these instructions regarding the annual festivals of the Lord. That to me is super interesting. So now we actually have some context here. Now we know what exactly this festival is about, how long it lasts, and what the significant things are that happen on every day. That being said, I'm going to go into a little bit more of a deep dive on that later. But just to go over what I had for verses 3 through 5, it made me wonder a bit. So it said even his brothers didn't believe in him. I can imagine that they all grew up with Jesus' children. And it kind of goes back to that idea Jesus talked about in an earlier chapter that a prophet's not a prophet in his own hometown. So I'm sure his brothers were told about Jesus' divine birth. They probably could not avoid that. I mean, he was the firstborn. And I mean, Joseph, his dad was his earthly father, but he had a different heavenly father. He had a different father than his siblings. Likely, at least, they had heard about that. And I kind of have to think this too. You know, how would you feel knowing that your brother is literally the son of God? Talk about sibling rivalry. (laughs) There's a quote from Luke chapter 1, verse 32. God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. Verse 33 there said, he will reign over Israel forever. Verse 35 said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High, now this is talking to Mary, will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. I would have to imagine that this might be difficult for his brothers to face this truth because how do you measure up to your brother when he's literally the son of God? You know, divine birth, he is the Messiah. It'd be easier for them to ignore or discredit this fact, I think, because it would just be easier than to face the truth for them. I don't think that necessarily their parents probably tried to make differences, but they themselves are so close to the situation, they're almost too close. Reading these first five verses, uh, the NIV version also points out that since chapter 6, verse 4, was during Passover, it has to have been about roughly six months since the events of the last chapter. And then as I go down and I read through verse 5, the verse begins with a theme that we read throughout this chapter. People not accepting Christ because of their past with him. The half-brothers of Jesus had lived with him for 30 years, and they still did not understand the messianic nature of Jesus. Later, we will see people argue similarly because they knew Jesus' mother and earthly father, which they believe is proof that he's not the Messiah, because they believe the Messiah is just going to pop out of nowhere. Yeah, I had gotten that too. There's something in the later part of the chapter I'll mention, but it's the same thing. They thought that the Messiah had a different origin story than Jesus. Well, that being said, do we want to go ahead and tackle the next couple verses? Yeah, we're going to go on to verses 6 through 9. Jesus replied, Now is not the right time for me to go, but you can go anytime. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet come. After saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. Here, as we begin in verse 6, in Jesus' response to his brothers, he notes that they may go. And as we continue in his statement, he says that he can't because he accuses the world of doing evil. This shows us that Jesus is saying that there's a distinction of being of the world, which is where he places his brothers, and with Jesus. The world doesn't react to those who are of the world. But, as Jesus points out here, those with Jesus run opposed to many things of the world, and it brings persecution. Jesus then says that his time has not yet come, showing as always he is aware of his mission on earth, and how people are reacting to it. Yeah, you know, I had some of that information too. And I had mentioned that Jesus' brothers don't understand that he has a work from God to accomplish. And it's in God's timing. He was aware of God's will. He was actively listening. But the brothers are almost jeering. 
They don't understand why he's here. I mean, they don't even accept that he's the Messiah. So that's why they're not giving him very good advice. And it's so true, just to build on what you said, Justin, that verse says, it does hate me because I accuse it of evil. It reminds me why people resist even talking about God or their faith in the first place or acknowledging him at all. Many times it's because people don't want to admit that the things we do are evil or that we have to change our ways. That's a good point too, because as we've read through John and as we'll see in this chapter too, most of this whole, they don't think that they're evil is about them creating their own rules to what's good and evil Mm -hmm. and not abiding by God's rules of what's good and evil. That's where Jesus accuses it of doing evil. He's just pointing out that those things that you guys want to pretend that you can just sweep under the rug and aren't a problem are really sins, even if you paint it in a different way. Yeah, you got it. You know what? If we admit that we're sinful, we'll be confronted with change. And we even talked about this in an earlier chapter in John 3.19. It says, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. So naturally, as followers of Christ, you might not be everyone's favorite person. You, in reality, might be hated by some of the people that you work with or that you see every day because many times it's not that they hate you. They just hate Jesus. They hated him then because he called out their sin and they hate him now in us. Not everybody loves a Christian. In reality, it's it's hard. And he never said that this walk would be easy. But we have to ask ourselves this question sometimes. How hated are we? If we're not telling people about Jesus, we probably are going to be a likable person and we're still going to hopefully be likable because we have Jesus's morality as our morality. If you're not speaking the truth, you're not going to be hated like Jesus was hated. Clearly in the book of Ephesians, it states, and this is in chapter five, verse six, that we should not be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. And verse 11, it says, take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. We're not hated if we're not exposing sin. And that doesn't mean calling people out and being like, hey, you, I know what you're doing is wrong and embarrassing them. No, we're supposed to do what Jesus did and come to them with love. John 3, 17, Jesus did not come into the world to judge the world. He came in the world to save it. Mm hmm. All right, then moving on to verses 10 through 13. But after his brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly staying out of public view. The Jewish leaders tried to find him at the festival and kept asking if anyone had seen him. There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowds. Some argued he's a good man, but others said he's nothing but a fraud who deceives people. But no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. So I had a little part for verse 10 here, a little bit for 12 and 13. So in verse 10, it talks about how Jesus did end up going to the festival, though not as a pilgrim like the NIV study Bible points out. The English version study Bible actually points out that the Greek translation is, I am not now going. So earlier Jesus says, I'm not going to the festival, but then he ends up going. It's because that translation just means I'm not going right now. That clarifies it's not like he wasn't going to go at all, but rather in secret, like the verse says. When I read verses 12 and 13, I have to think, has anything changed since then? Among different religions, this still is debated even. You know, Jewish leaders were trying to keep him and his message silent. And I just think, going back to what we talked about earlier, people want to keep the message of Jesus silent. Even his own people did. His brothers didn't believe him. The Jewish hierarchy at the time didn't believe him. And even today, there's so much unrest. People let religion get in the way of a relationship all the time. And I just thought that was interesting. We think, you know, so much has changed since the days of the Bible. Yeah, not really. Humans, nothing new under the sun. Starting at verse 14. Then, midway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. The people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much when he hasn't been trained? They asked. So Jesus told them, My message is not my own. 
It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves. But a person who seeks to honor the one who sent him speaks truth, not lies. Moses gave you the law, but none of you obeys it. In fact, you're trying to kill me. For me, the start is, if we go back to 14, Jesus is waiting until midway through the festival to begin preaching. During this time, everyone's in the temple. Everyone needs to be in the temple obligatorily. He chose the time to start his preaching when the temple would be packed. He picked a time where his message would reach the most people. In 15, it says that he hadn't been trained. Well, Jesus would have still had the same training about the Torah that everyone else did in boys' school. But the point here is that he wasn't trained as a religious leader officially. This points to the fact that he has been sent by God, and so he has divine knowledge. Nowadays, we have the internet. But back then, how would he have ever had access to those ancient scrolls? How would he have ever had access to the scriptures? And yet he just has all this knowledge. He has not had any formal training. He was literally a carpenter up until this point. So the people are shocked. Then we see in verse 16, Jesus is answering the question that was just posed to him in 15. He talks about how, like Katie said, his training was from God. He didn't need schooling on how to be a religious leader. Then in 17, as the NIV points out, the people who are set to do the will of God are the ones who understand his message. Much like with the parables, it's about being the fertile ground that's ready to receive the message. The King James Version makes an important point here that obedience is how we do the will of God. We can't start with complete understanding. This makes me question, how many times do we ask God for the whole picture before we're willing to take the step that he's asking us to take next? Mm -hmm. Yeah, before we even seek his scripture for answers, we just look up to heaven and go, why God, why? Tell me, tell me more, answer my questions. Then next, as we'll see in verse 20, Jesus in 19 speaks directly to the religious leaders. He's speaking directly to the Pharisees, and he points out that their legalism doesn't work. They want to punish Jesus for his working on the Sabbath, but they are willing to plot and scheme a murder in the name of it and lie about it to cover it up nonetheless. Yeah, you know what? That's interesting. I had something about that too. So the NIV points out... Jesus was not self-seeking. He was not trying to glorify himself, but glorify God. And the Pharisees were doing the opposite, using their knowledge of God to glorify themselves. They were so proud to be the chosen recipients of the law, yet they couldn't keep it. No one was perfect, even if they thought they were righteous. And Jesus gives them a prime example. They are literally planning and premeditating his murder. And another point that I... A less poignant point, I think, is that if I put myself in the people's shoes at this time. So the people have obviously, you know, heard of this plot. I think by this time it kind of makes it seem that way. Or maybe they know about the plot at this time. And it makes me think that if I was around during the time of Jesus's teaching, how would I be able to tell that Jesus is actually the Messiah? So earlier in John, we read of the signs and miracles that he's done. So there's so many examples of divine knowledge, too, including the fact that he has so much wisdom and never went to any kind of schooling or training. He has witnesses, including God himself, the scriptures and John the Baptist. Now he's saying that our heart content, which Jesus has proved he can see, example, the woman at the well, Nicodemus, the man by the pool of Bethesda, and his own disciples is going to be a factor. So the exact line, anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God. These people have enough evidence to decide for themselves whether or not he's God's son. And yet at the same time, the Pharisees are trying to make a show of it and try to say that he isn't, but there's already enough evidence. Then moving on to verse 20. The crowd replied, you're demon possessed. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus replied, I did one miracle on the Sabbath and you were amazed, but you work on the Sabbath too. 
when you obey Moses' law of circumcision. Actually, this is a tradition of circumcision that began with the patriarchs long before the law of Moses. For if the correct time for circumcising your son falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and do it so as to not break the law of Moses. So why should you be angry with me for healing a man on the Sabbath? Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. As we go back 20, like I had said about 19, not only do these people break the commandments by plotting murder, but then immediately respond by lying and bearing false witness. To those who were pilgrims for the holidays, they answered not understanding who the religious leaders were. The plotters were more than happy to allow their public image to deceive those. Yeah, I had in verse 20 that a lot of people who were coming to these festivals were likely pilgrims and not from the area, so they might not have heard about the plot to kill Jesus. But the local people might have heard of it. I mean, it was, of course, a big issue among the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Jesus then points out that he is being charged with healing someone on the Sabbath. The religious leaders circumcise on the Sabbath. The English Standard Version, I think, words it really well. If perfecting someone through circumcision is in accordance with God's command, it is okay on the Sabbath. Would healing someone of a much bigger issue not then be justified? So then, moving on to the next section. Some of the people who lived in Jerusalem started to ask each other, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? But here he is, speaking in public, and they say nothing to him. Could our leaders possibly believe that he's the Messiah? But how could he be? For we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, he will simply appear. No one will know where he comes from. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he called out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I'm not here on my own. The one who sent me is true, and you don't know him. But I know him because I come from him, and he sent me to you. There is an interesting footnote about this part in the King James Version that I'd like to read. Uh, This is in a Matthew Henry Study Bible Commentary. This passage focuses on Jesus' claim to Messiahship. There is no question in the minds of his listeners about his claim, which he had made clear to them. But their response is confused and divided. There were three very good reasons for accepting his claim. First, the hesitancy of the rulers to stop him the miracles he did, and three, the excellence of his speaking. However, they found three reasons for rejecting his claim. One, it was commonly believed that the Messiah would come in a spectacular fashion, according to Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, which we're going to read in a minute. But Jesus' supposed origin was well known. The Messiah was to sit on the throne of David and therefore must be a Judean from Bethlehem, the city of David. But they thought Jesus was born in Galilee. The Messiah was to be a defender of the law, yet Jesus seemed indifferent to it by healing on the Sabbath. So Justin, would you mind reading that passage in Malachi? This is Malachi 3, 1 through 5. Look, I am sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. Then once more the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people of Judah and Jerusalem as he did in the past. At that time, I will put you on trial. I am eager to witness against all sorcerers and adulterers and liars. I will speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, or who deprive the forgiveness living among you of justice. For these people do not fear me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Yeah, so notice there, it says suddenly. They thought that the Messiah would come in a spectacular way. But Jesus did start his healing suddenly. He was 
33, right? 33 when he was crucified and 30 when he started his ministry. His ministry was only three years long, but people might have believed like in the days of Moses that the Messiah would have a greater, grander display than a lowly carpenter who lived in Galilee. So that's their own misinterpretation. It's a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. And everything listed that was prophesied here actually does come true. He did put the people on trial. He's doing it right now with the Pharisees. And he's refining the Levites. Like it said, he held them accountable for sin. He purified these Levites. That's the lineage of the priesthood. All the priests came through Levi. So they're the Levites. And I even put in my notes, aka the priests and the Pharisees. So it makes me wonder... Did the Pharisees just skip over that part when they were studying? Or are they just so resistant because they loved their sin and they loved their power? They loved their power. Verse 30 says, God was not going to allow any of these plots to come to fruition until Jesus' work on earth was done. So literally, he is doing what they said. The Pharisees have all of these texts. They are supposed to be grand interpreters of scripture. So they know this information. Did they not know that it's them and the corruption that's going on that's going to be purified? It just makes me feel like, what's it going to take for these people to get it? And as I'm looking over uh, 25 through 27, we see a reason to believe and we see reason to doubt. First, the fact that the rulers weren't actively after Jesus, they weren't arresting him as he's talking he's still out there talking the people who know about these plots the people who weren't the pilgrims that came in they must have been questioning what's going on here why is this guy not getting arrested when we know that these leaders do not agree with him and do not follow him then many question him because of the fact that there's nothing that's outwardly supernatural or fantastical about how jesus appeared to them as we just read in Malachi, they believed that he'd pop up out of thin air. They thought suddenly meant, poof, he's there. It's the Messiah. Time to go. The people knew Jesus and his family and did not want to believe the Messiah would come from such roots. Even though God has a past of using people from humble origins like Moses and like David. Yeah, that's so true. So even though they have prime examples in their former rulers that they highly esteem or example Moses who led them out of slavery, they want the fantastical like they read about in the scriptures. They want the pillar of fire by night. They want the fiery chariot that Elijah rode up into heaven in. They want, I keep mentioning fire, but it is pretty fantastical. Or like when the altar was completely burned up. They want these amazing big signs, but he's giving them as much evidence as they need. They've seen healings. They've seen divine knowledge. He has so many witnesses and it's just not what they expected. So they're resistant. They're not believing. Our next section then is verses 30 to 36. Then the leaders tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Many among the crowds at the temple believed in him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? When the Pharisees heard that the crowds were whispering such things, they and the leading priest sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus. But Jesus told them, I will be with you only a little while longer. Then I will return to the one who sent me. You will search for me, but not find me. And you cannot go where I'm going. The Jewish leaders were puzzled by this statement. Where's he planning to go, they asked. Is he thinking of leaving the country and going to Jews in other lands? Maybe he will even teach the Greeks. What does he mean when he says, you will search for me but not find me, and you cannot go where I am going? Yeah, regarding verse 31, I can literally relate to these people. I'm like, yeah, this is what we've been saying the whole time. How much more evidence do you need? Yeah, and as we see here, and I think this is such a deep and impactful point, we see the people speaking about Jesus's miracles. And Jesus is hearing this 
And his response is, it doesn't matter what I've done because his next words are turning them to his death, to the greatest miracle he's ever going to do. They can talk about all the miracles he's done so far, but Jesus knows the point and he drives it right to it. He goes straight to his death. It's a beautiful line to show that while to the people it seemed unconnected at the time, his sacrifice was the greatest miracle of all. Yeah, without his death, we couldn't have had forgiveness for our sins and a relationship with God. And if I think about it, this part can apply to my own life as well. I think don't miss your opportunity to come to Jesus while he is right in front of you. You know, speaking to your heart. Don't let that moment get away because we have no guarantee of a tomorrow or even, you know, this afternoon, even another breath. You just never know if this will be the last chance you have to believe in Jesus and get to live life eternally with him. Just as he said, I will be with you only a little longer to the people who he was physically with. Take advantage of salvation while it's still on your mind because it might not be, there might not be a next time. You just never know. And one more thing to note about that, the Pharisees, think about them in this moment too. They are letting pride get in the way of following Jesus. They won't be able to follow him where he's going. They have been trying to get to God another way through religion. And this is speaking to them here. It's a direct message to them. So 37 to 39, on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit, who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet entered his glory. The one thing that really hit me heavy as I was studying about this is the NIV adds here that water was one of the major focuses of the Feast of Tabernacles. On that last day of the festival, there was a special gathering. Instead of sitting as most teachers do, Jesus stands and he speaks loudly, attracting as much attention as possible. The festival celebrates God's giving of water to sustain life in the wilderness. Jesus uses that point to say that he is living water that goes deeper here than we have spoken about yet because in the context of where he was when he was he declared that he was the fulfillment of the festival and the focus of all of the worship that this festival had to give boom mic drop yeah something that i thought was super interesting is that before every day of this festival there would be a procession that would lead out of the city or out of the area. And the priest would take a golden pitcher that people would follow and he would go to their main water source, living water, which is a fresh spring, right? Down at a spring. He would fill the pitcher and come back in to one of those 12 gates around the city. There's a particular gate and the people would recite a portion from Isaiah 12, verse 3. And with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Remember the term living water to them represented fresh moving spring water, not stale stagnant water like at the well that we saw a couple chapters back. And this represented their salvation or their deliverance. So then they go to the temple and they pour the water out. And he's speaking to them in a cultural context that they'll understand. So like you said, Justin, the interesting thing is that the symbolism here, Jesus says, come to me and drink. The NIV says, since the festival of tabernacles celebrated God's provision of water in the wilderness, for Jesus to claim that he is the living water, he is the provision when we're in a wilderness, which is, you know, we're spiritually dry. It means that this is the fulfillment of the whole entire festival. He is saying that the whole festival itself in the Old Testament that generations have been celebrating literally points to him showing that he is worthy of worship. What? It's just amazing. It's so awesome. Therefore saying that he is God. Therefore saying that he is God. I love it. Woo! Gets me all excited. (laughs) 
Okay, so the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart, referring to prophecy of the Messiah. Messiah. So what scriptures actually point to that? So Isaiah 44 verse 3 says, For I will pour out water to quench your thirst and to irrigate your parched fields. And I will pour out my spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, on your descendants and my blessing on your children. Also in Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 5. Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money, come take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the unfailing love I promised to David. See how I used him to display my power among the peoples. I made him a leader among the nations. You also will command nations you do not know. The peoples unknown to you will come running to obey because I, the Lord your God, Holy One of Israel, have made you glorious. And then the very last one is 5811. And that one says, the Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. So again, Jesus is talking to them in a context that not only the people, because remember, the Pharisees, they have Isaiah. Maybe not the everyday folks that were coming to listen, but the Pharisees should know that being said, there's also one too in Zechariah 14.8 that says, On that day, life-giving waters will flow out from Jerusalem. Think about the symbolism we just read about. Half towards the Dead Sea, half towards the Mediterranean, flowing continuously in both summer and winter. So a short note, I wanted to know more about the context in which this verse was taken out in Zechariah. And I read a few chapters which was kind of confusing to me honestly uh without starting from the beginning but it makes me want to dive a little deeper into Zechariah too <laughs> after that there's no specific scripture that says the exact words that Jesus says in his message but because of the context the Pharisees would know about it and the symbolism during this festival it all points to him being the Messiah him being the Messiah so I also had a footnote about Verse 39, I wanted to read the King James Version footnote. Yeah, the little heading for this section is called Indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and it's all about this verse. So this is what it says. One of God's purposes since the beginning has been to dwell with humanity and enjoy fellowship with us. He does it in his dispensation through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, number one, occurs automatically when a person is saved, meaning they believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that he died for our sins. Two, is not an experience, but produces spiritual experiences. That's very important. Three, remains permanently. Four, is the basis of all other ministries of the Holy Spirit. Five, is the source of new life in the believer. Illustration, when Paul met 12 disciples of John who did not know of the Holy Spirit, he knew they needed to be saved. So he preached the gospel to them. The application here is that the Holy Spirit's indwelling should motivate the believer to be careful not to harm his body or indulge his body in sin. Because literally your body is a holy temple. I just thought that was really interesting. Talking about, you know, the spiritual rebirth in these past few chapters and the spiritual living waters that Jesus can give which he refers to here so yeah I know a lot for that tiny chunk verse 40 when the crowds heard him say this some of them declared surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting others said he is the messiah still others said but he can't be will the messiah come from Galilee for the scriptures clearly state that the messiah will be born in the royal line of David, in Bethlehem, in the village where King David was born. So, the crowd was divided about him. Some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. So, as many hear Jesus' message and believe, there are still those 
who are stuck in tiny details. Despite his ministry, these people argue that he can't be the Messiah because as we read in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, when God says, But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come to you on my behalf. It tells of a ruler coming to be born in Bethlehem of Judea in the line of David. But these people assume that Jesus was born in Galilee. Yeah, they're still so hung up on that. And it makes sense. They're trying to compile evidence for or against Jesus to make a decision. They, of course, have the false information that he wasn't born in Bethlehem, which he was. I noticed the part in 40 where it says people thought he might have been the prophet that they'd been waiting for instead of the Messiah. And I was like, where did that come from? So I looked in one of my study Bibles here and it said that in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, it says, I am sending you the prophet Elijah. So if you skip ahead, it says his preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. They're expecting a prophet of sorts. Or in Deuteronomy 18, 15, it says the Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. A prophet like me. So they're a little bit confused about what exactly is going on. Yeah, the irony here is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, as was King David, even though his family was from Nazareth. Remember, they came because they needed they were going to be taxed. But then his family had to flee to Egypt when King Herod started killing all the young males. That's a story for another day. You can read Matthew 2 if you want to hear the rest of it. But basically, Hosea 11 verse 1 says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt. A lot of people think symbolically that's talking about Jesus here too, because they did have to run to Egypt to hide. It's just so interesting how all the symbolism comes together. So Jesus was able to return and come out of Egypt, just like how collectively so did the children of Israel. This is an ingrained part of the people's history, and yet some are still missing it. Everything about Jesus' life and these people's history is one. You know, it is one. It's an entangled story that can't be pulled apart. And this message is for them. He's not talking to Gentiles right now who would know nothing of this history. He's literally talking to people who should know their own history and their ancestry. They even go to school to learn the first five books of the Bible when they're young. They don't get it. They had Deuteronomy. They know that the people were in Egypt and then came out of it. They're just not looking hard enough for the details. I think we can apply this to our own life. Like Justin said earlier, are we really seeking God for the answers? Because the answers are in his word. Sometimes we just pray and pray and pray. We want God to speak to us and his answers are right in front of us. We're just not seeking enough. Yeah. If you ever question, am I hearing the voice of God? Go back to the beginning of John. Go back to the first chapter we read. Jesus is the word. Mm-hmm. Our The yeah. word is how we talk to Jesus. Yeah. This is how we hear Jesus speak to us. Mm-hmm. You got it. It said the word was God. You want to hear God's voice? You go to his word, right? Yep. So then moving forward in verse 45, when the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, why didn't you bring him in? We have never heard anyone speak like this. The guards responded. Have you been led astray too? The Pharisees mocked. Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? This foolish crowd follows him, but they're ignorant of the law. God's curse is on them. Then Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he's given a hearing? He asked. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. Then the meeting broke up and everyone went home. This part, it really softens up my heart because even the guards who were sent to arrest him, armed with hostility, they encounter Jesus and he just completely disarms them. 
He completely disarms them. I love that so much. Um, so many people think that they know Jesus, especially now. People will say they think they know Christians. They think they know Jesus. But I have even found in my own life that they can be surprised or confused when they find out more about who Jesus actually is. They think they know him. They have no idea. Uh, when they actually realize he's not who or what they thought he was, they can be disarmed too. In the NIV version, it mentions the Pharisees implied that no leader believed in Jesus, yet Nicodemus, who spoke to Jesus in John chapter 3, pointed out their own disregard for the law. This is where we see it's it's so awesome because he talked to him chapters ago. Who knows how much time has actually passed here? And you never get to find out, it feels like, or for that long stretch of time, you don't get to see the direct result of the seed planted. But then we see him speak up here. Obviously, he's been thinking about what Jesus said this whole time. And now he's defending him and pointing out the hypocrisy among the other leaders. That is also so applicable in our life. We are supposed to go out and plant seeds, but we don't water them. God's going to water the seeds. We might never know what the impact of what we've said or done has influenced someone down the road. Just like Nicodemus here. This is a long time that has passed. A good, it seems like many months. And yet here he is. He's taken those words to heart. How beautiful is it to see the full circle here of Nicodemus coming back into the picture and Nicodemus being someone who's speaking out, defending Jesus against the outreach of these Pharisees. It's so meaningful and so impactful to then go back and the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. He's saying that to Nicodemus. He's talking to Nicodemus. And chapter three is just such a beautiful chapter about going deep into what is salvation and what does salvation mean to you? And it's so beautiful to see Nicodemus back here speaking out. And as we've said in previous verses, people who are with Christ see response. Nicodemus calls out these Pharisees for what they're doing. The same way Jesus is calling out the Pharisees in the past chapter here, past few chapters. He calls them out and he tells them that you're plotting against me. <laughs> Nicodemus is saying the same thing. What? Why? You're plotting a trial for this man and you already want to condemn him? You're already talking about the sentencing and you haven't even took him to trial. You have no evidence against him? If you did, he'd be arrested. He'd be in chains. But you don't have evidence against him. You have nothing to put on him. You have nothing to do to arrest him. You couldn't even make it through a trial with this. The Pharisees only response here is to mock Nicodemus and scold him and say, there's no prophets that ever come from Galilee. The scriptures say that. But as we take a step back from that and we analyze this, first, these Pharisees are trying to limit God and say that God can't bring a prophet out of Galilee. And you're like, where does it say that? <laughs> Since when is God limited? Second, they look over the prophet Jonah because in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, we find out he was from Galilee. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. funny. Yeah. The keepers of the law they are, honey. <laughs> so this is definitely a chapter here where Jesus starts stirring up the Pharisees. And I got to feel in this moment here, as the Pharisees are building up to their, we can't stand this guy, their solace that they try and find is to say, well, all of us are smarter than everyone else. All of us know better than these peasants and these pilgrims than all these people who traveled in who know nothing and haven't studied the word. They say, well, none of us believe it. None of us follow. And then one of their own stands up and says, well, you're not even following what you should be following. And I bet that just makes them hot under Ooh, the collar. It, yeah. just, it just burns them up like how embarrassing man <laughs> it's it's quite a thing to get to a point where you're so fired up 
that you're not even thinking logically. And that's Uh what we see at the end of this chapter. We see an argument where the Pharisees get so fired up about Nicodemus saying this, they throw knowledge and logic out the window. We're at the end of the chapter here. So I'm going to throw out some W's here. So wow, what stood out to me? So how people at this time had questions about whether or not Jesus was the Messiah, just like they do today. The response of Nicodemus stood out to me and overall how much evidence there is to support that Jesus is who he says he is. It blows me away. You know, if you read through John, you see compacting and compacting and compacting evidence. It's the snowball that's building momentum up until his crucifixion. So it's going to get even bigger and bigger. Wonder, what does this make me wonder about? So at this point, we don't know, did Jesus's brothers ever end up believing that he's the Messiah? At this point in time, we don't have that information. So that's something for another chapter here. All right, the main point. So why is this passage in the Bible? Why is it important? This can be different for everybody, but all of the past, present, and future points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. He offers living water the Holy Spirit for us. And we have to ask ourselves, are we accepting this endless flowing spirit? He stands up in the middle of this festival and points out to the people that literally all of their traditions, all of their history points to him. There will always be those who don't believe in Jesus, even with all the evidence before them. But you have to ask yourself, are you a skeptic? Are you someone who doesn't believe that he is who he says he is. What more evidence do you need? Who? Who does this show me that God is? He is the living water. He is the savior that the Jewish people were waiting for. He's divine. He's got this divine knowledge. He does miracles. He's been sent by God. So he is on a mission that will end with his death. He's foreshadowing that through all these chapters. His death, burial, and resurrection, which is the key, leading to his glory. Just like here, he proved that he is worthy of worship, that he is worthy of all this praise, that this festival is literally for him because the symbolism is the same. He's worthy of that right now. So where can we apply this to our lives? Are we overflowing with his spirit for all to experience? Are we keeping his goodness a secret? We talked about in the beginning, his brothers wanted him to go to the festival and he said, The world doesn't hate you like it hates me. If we're keeping Jesus a secret, we're not going to feel any of the persecution. And at some point, you know, we don't want persecution, right? But we have to ask ourselves, are we even following his will? Are we following his law? Are we telling other people about Jesus? Because if you're not uncomfortable sometimes being a Christian, there might be something wrong with that picture. Not in all instances, but we have to ask ourselves that. Are we hated like Jesus was hated? He offers the words that lead to life, life eternally, life that's more fulfilling. And we're going to continue to read that as these chapters go on. But there also is going to be resistance to that truth. There always is. There always is. People don't want to change. And that's why. It's always amazing going through these chapters and letting the Holy Spirit lead us and guide us and teach us more and more about Jesus Mm -hmm. and more and more about God. And then that's the whole focus of this is to try and draw ourselves in a better relationship with Jesus and with God, with the Holy Spirit as our guide. Mm -hmm. We thank you guys for listening to John chapter seven. Yeah. yeah. And we are excited to have you guys back for John chapter eight. Ooh, see ya. (laughs) 